Hello everyone and welcome to the LRQA Health and Safety Podcast Series. In this episode, we continue our conversation with Martin Cottam, Chair of the ISO Technical Committee for Occupational Health and Safety Management. Martin will be talking about the five key health and safety challenges and how they have evolved over the years. And he begins by outlining the areas he has chosen. Well, it was quite a challenge to identify just five topics for discussion today, as there are many areas of OHS management which can prove challenging for organisations, of course, and where ISO 45001 and the guidance standards in the ISO 45000 series are trying to provide help. I mean, leadership, for example, is a topic that very often arises in discussion, uh, as does worker participation and consultation. And I think there's a good conversation to be had around the contribution of non-executive directors in setting expectations and challenging OHS performance as part of the top management that steers an organisation. But in the end, I chose other topics for today, including some where I think we have seen real progress in uh, recent years, and somewhere there's perhaps more to do, and where standards could contribute to the debate. The first challenge that Martin talks about is the shift from safety to health and safety, and what that means. Well, I remember very well that at the start of the development of ISO 45001, there was a lot of discussion about the need to include an increased emphasis on health. It was observed that for many organisations, their OHS management system was largely a safety management system and that there was very limited attention uh, given to health. So there was a real wish that in moving from OSAS 18001 to ISO 45001, we'd moved to a standard which encouraged organisations to place equal weight on health and safety. Now, in reality, both standards actually are pretty consistent in mentioning health and safety equally. So, you know, when I look at the printed text, I'm not sure that ISO 45001 actually succeeded in giving greater emphasis to health. However, Perhaps it was just the fact that this aspiration was was so widely discussed and disseminated, or perhaps because the imbalance was being increasingly widely recognised in organisations anyway. But whatever the reason, uh, there does seem to have been a trend for stronger coverage of health issues in OHS management systems uh, over recent years. Of course, the fact that we have those two different words, health, and safety is a useful reminder that the two things are different and have quite different characteristics. Safety incidents are often immediate and highly visible, whereas health effects can be slow to develop during or sometimes long after a period of exposure. But of course, the effects can be equally devastating for individuals and their families, and in fact, the costs to the organisation uh, can be similar. So it's easy to understand why we perhaps naturally focus on safety. But when you look at it more rationally, health is just as important. So I think it's good to see more evidence of organisations more thoroughly addressing the health side of OHS, uh, including some excellent uh, proactive work that we see these days to promote 
healthier lifestyles. It's important, of course, that such proactive efforts are built on a solid foundation, though. Uh, and that solid foundation is about first identifying hazards to health, assessing the associated risks, and then applying appropriate controls. The second challenge is psychological health safety and well-being. And we asked Martin if that was part of the same trend. Yes, I think it is. And I think the, the focus on psychological health is perhaps a more recent development, perhaps as an extension of that longer term trend to focus more on health, but definitely, I would suggest, accelerated by the COVID-19 pandemic. And this is an excellent development because psychological health has been a long neglected area. And of course, also necessary because psychosocial risks have become more significant for many workers for perhaps a couple of reasons. One, because we've just got better at managing the uh, risks associated with physical hazards, uh, and they are now well controlled in many workplaces. But also because we have a growing service sector in many of the developed uh, economies, and in the service sector, uh, psychosocial risks are often the most significant risks. So it's great to see psychological health, safety and well-being getting the attention it deserves. And hopefully ISO 45003 uh, has contributed both to raising awareness and helping people know how to address the issues. And here I think the challenge is, is really about uh, striking the right balance between what might be seen as easy and visible adjustments and the often harder work of eliminating hazards at source. Now that's, you know, that's just effectively the same issue we face with physical safety, where the so-called hierarchy of control encourages us first to eliminate a hazard, second to substitute or change something to reduce the risk, thirdly to apply engineering controls and administrative controls, and only finally to use personal protective equipment or PPE recognizing that as we work down that hierarchy, the measures we're using are less effective and more likely to fail. Well, it's exactly the same with psychological harm. We should always start by exploring the potential to eliminate the hazard or reduce the risk. In other words, it should be about adapting work to the worker by changing the work arrangements, uh, not trying to adapt the worker to tolerate the work uh, unchanged. For example, it, it's not enough, say, to acknowledge that there are potential sources of stress and simply say, well, we need to train people to be resilient and to cope with stress. Of course, there is a place for such training, but it should be used alongside and not instead of reducing the risk at source. And the same goes for well-being interventions and the support that can be provided by mental health first aiders, these can be very useful, but they're not a substitute for actions to eliminate hazards, reduce risk, and prevent the occurrence of harm. So this has been an area of rapid progress, but I think we need to see some of those efforts um, maturing a bit more. It's great to have organizations starting to think about psychological health, safety, and well-being, but we need the primary focus to be on hazard elimination and risk reduction, rather than on 
making workers resilient or on supporting and rehabilitating people who've already suffered harm due to their situation at work. Boundaries of the workplace was the third challenge that Martin had chosen and here he explains what he means by that. I remember that there was a lot of debate when ISO 45001 was being written about how to define a workplace and there were questions and debates about whether for people travelling on business um, the airport, hotel or aircraft were to be treated as part of their workplace. And, and there were also discussions about people working in public spaces, such as utility workers on the public highway or the emergency services. There wasn't, as far as I can recall, much discussion at the time about working from home. Now, a lot's changed since then, particularly the prevalence of working from home. And also with the generally more flexible approach to workplace uh, that many organisations have adopted. It feels to me that ISO 45001 got it more or less correct with its definition of workplace as a place where a worker needs to go or to be for work purposes, while recognising that the degree of control that the organisation has over that workplace may vary. I think there's a general acceptance that this all-embracing definition of workplace is correct. The key challenge for organisations is to take measures that are appropriate to that degree of control that they have over the workplace, particularly if it's not their own premises. So we saw some organisations that implemented working from home during the early months of the COVID-19 pandemic doing this by requiring workers to work to carry out risk assessments of their own home working setup, and then going on to provide equipment such as height adjustable chairs, uh, extra monitors where these were needed. And all of that very much relied on consultation with workers and, and collaboration really, to get to the point where workers and employers were content that uh, any significant risks had been addressed. But I don't think we can perhaps assume that that was the norm. I, I suspect there are still some organisations which haven't properly addressed their workers' home working arrangements. We also probably should remember that it's not just physical issues that arise here with the increased flexibility of work. There can be uh, psychosocial effects too, and they also need to be considered. That might be people becoming isolated or people for whom working from home begins to feel like living at work. But certainly looking forward, as working arrangements in many organisations become more flexible, uh, and with the increased amount of work being undertaken in environments or premises that are not under the control of the organisation, it does become increasingly important that organisations make sure that their OHS management system reflects this change. Martin's fourth challenge that he wanted to talk about is supply chain responsibility, and here he explains why. This is a very challenging area from a standards writer's perspective, uh, because standards aim to be applicable to organisations of any size, and that makes it difficult then to reflect the huge differences between the situation of large organisations at the top of global supply chains and small organisations much further down those supply chains. 
I'm sure many listeners will recall the collapse of the Rana Plaza building in Dhaka in Bangladesh in 2013, uh, which housed five garment factories. And in that collapse, over 1,100 people lost their lives and about 2,500 people were injured. And it really was an event which resonated around the world. And it raised a lot of questions about the OHS responsibilities of the large multinational clothing brands who contracted the manufacturing of their garments to the factories in the Rana Plaza building. And there was a lot of concern that these companies were at worst, perhaps ignoring the health and safety of those making their garments, concerned only with getting the garments made cheaply. Or if it wasn't that, then was it at least true to say that the companies were failing to use their influence to improve OHS standards in their supply chains? I think many people would think it reasonable to expect the large corporations and brands at the top of global supply chains to take some interest in and and in fact exert some positive influence over the health and safety standards being applied within their supply chains. But we equally need to recognize that smaller organizations much further down those supply chains, and especially those small and micro organizations with with just a handful of employees, they potentially have very little, if any, such influence over those from whom they buy products and services, given that those suppliers might in fact be larger and more powerful organizations anyway. So from the point of view of standardization, this is a challenge. We can't set a requirement in a standard which is impossible for a subset of users to fulfill. But equally, it just feels unsatisfactory to conclude that the standard can't include any requirement for those global corporations and brands to consider and seek to influence the OHS performance of their suppliers. So I think this will be an interesting debate when eventually we come round to revising ISO 45001 because we will really want to encourage all organizations who realistically can do something to do it, to exert positive influence on OHS in their supply chains, because I mean, that could have a huge benefit in driving up OHS standards around the globe and especially in smaller organizations. But on the other hand, we can't set a requirement which not all companies would have a chance of being able to fulfill. The final topic on Martin's list is about creating an accurate picture of performance. And here he explains why he regards this as a challenging area. I've been thinking quite a lot about this area recently as the ISO Technical Committee for OHS has a working group, which is in the early stages of developing a guidance standard on OHS performance management. And that's ISO 45004 which is due for publication in 2024. And I've actually been participating in some of the working group discussions, uh, contributing some of my own experience in performance evaluation. And that's really brought home to me what a challenging area this uh, has been and continues to be for many organizations. I think it's also an area which is likely to get more scrutiny in the future including in relation to what organizations report externally about their OHS performance. And that's given the the sort of increased profile of ESG considerations in business, environment, social and governance. 
and the expansion of interest in resilience and in sustainability, of which OHS is a significant component. So in management system terms, when we think of the Plan Do Check Act cycle, it's easy to associate performance evaluation with the check step. But it's also worth thinking about two other steps in PDCA to understand just how important uh, appropriate use of metrics uh, really is. Firstly, it's easy to say it, but let's recognize that the ACT step of the PDCA cycle is entirely dependent on the information, the performance picture that we assemble through measurement. So if we measure the wrong things, or if we lack measurements in key areas, we're creating blind spots, which make us vulnerable to taking poor decisions. And secondly, I think it's worth reminding ourselves that we need to start considering performance measurement, not at the check stage in the PDCA cycle, but actually at the plan stage. And so whenever we're thinking about a significant change or a new initiative, we need to think at that time about what will we need to measure? How will we measure it as part of the development of our plan? I suppose the key challenge for any organization is to get the right blend of leading and lagging indicators, making sure that you have a manageable number of top tier performance indicators that provide oversight of key aspects of performance, and then have some lower tier metrics through which you can drill down into detail and monitor specifics. Because we need to combine an ability to see the overall performance picture clearly and not be overwhelmed with data while still being able to monitor the many individual components of the system. I think we'd all recognize the importance of using leading indicators and not relying purely on the rear view mirror that is provided through lagging indicators. But I think we shouldn't take our lagging indicators for granted either, because they also need to be chosen thoughtfully and treated with some care. For example, you know, it's important that our performance evaluation covers not just those regularly experienced, hopefully relatively minor events that happen day to day, but that it also is covering any potential low frequency, high consequence events and looking at the controls that we have in place against those more severe incidents. And that's really important because there's increasing research evidence that measuring and trending things like slips, trips and falls doesn't tell us anything about the effectiveness of our controls against major incidents. And that's because we, we very often rely on quite different controls against major and minor incidents. We often use behavioral controls uh, to help reduce things like slips, trips and falls, but we'll be using engineering controls to prevent more severe accidents. And this means we, we can't use the trends in things like slips, trips and falls to tell us how effectively our engineering controls are being applied to protect us from a major incident. And we need separate measurements for this. I suppose this is well illustrated by the Macondo disaster in the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, many listeners will probably recall that the, uh, the Deepwater Horizon drilling rig had been commended for its performance in terms of those routine, relatively minor incidents. 
in the immediate run-up to that blowout and explosion in 2010, which destroyed the rig, causing the loss of 11 lives and substantial environmental damage. And it's certainly been suggested that the good performance in relation to minor incidents had been providing false reassurance that the risks of a major incident were, were being properly controlled, when in fact it, it turned out they were not. And there's a lot more I could say about the challenges of performance measurement, but perhaps uh, we'll keep that for another day. Thank you for listening to the LRQA Health and Safety podcast series. Visit our podcast series homepage on Spotify to listen to other episodes. And for more information about LRQA's health and safety services, visit info.lrqa.com forward slash HSS. HSS.